Hello and welcome to Making Media Now, the Filmmakers Collaborative Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. Joining me on this episode is Mark Cronin, one of Hollywood's most successful and prolific reality television producers. Mark is widely credited with co-creating the celebrity reality subgenre with the breakout hit, The Surreal Life, in 2003. As one of the most innovative creators and producers of reality television, Mark has founded three successful production companies, served as a showrunner on 44 separate TV series, which played on 13 different networks. He created or co-created 46 series, more than half of which went to multiple seasons, and 23 of which were spin-offs due to the successes of their original flagship series. After earning a chemical engineering degree from the University of Pennsylvania, Mark began his professional career in technical research and marketing. While working in that capacity, he began moonlighting as a freelance writer for an ace-winning newsbreak spoof that played on Nick at Night. Mark then switched careers permanently when he joined Howard Stern's nationally syndicated TV show, The Howard Stern Show, as a writer and a producer. After co-founding the reality production company Mindless Entertainment, Mark joined forces with 51 Pictures to form the reality powerhouse 51 Minds Entertainment in 2004. Under that banner, Mark created and co-created some of the most popular content in reality television, serving as showrunner on such hits as Flavor of Love, Rock of Love, and Charm School. Mark continued to develop new programming, including Bravo's highest-rated series premiere, Below Deck, which is now in post-production for its ninth season, as well as the successful spin-offs Below Deck Mediterranean, Below Deck Down Under, and Below Deck Adventure, which is now in production in Norway. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum. From providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs, Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe, leave a review, and share it with friends. And now on to my conversation with Mark Cronin. Well, hello, Mark Cronin, and welcome to Making Media Now. Well, thank you, Michael. Nice to be here. It's really good to speak with you. So, you know, when I was preparing for this interview, Mark, and looking over your just exhaustive resume, uh, it's kind of hard to believe that a 30-year career has resulted in you producing 50 TV shows. It almost seems like an inhuman feat. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and particularly when, when I was reading a little bit more deeply, you came to television from a prior life as an engineer, or at least having been an engineering student. Tell me about how you made that transition. You went from um, working in the field of engineering to writing and producing for Howard Stern. Not yeah. exactly a, a predictable <laughs> career trajectory. Well, I think the story is that in college I was doing both. I could, you know, you you can you can have your major and your studies, and then you can have your extracurricular life. Okay. And so my those two things for me were very different in college. I was an engineering student which I looked at as the practical thing to do and uh, something that would get me a job when I graduated. And then I, 
in my extracurricular life, I was in a comedy troupe and we would write and perform sketches and uh, do original shows. Uh, and uh, I loved it, but I never thought that that was some way to you know make money. Everybody I knew who had recently graduated and tried to go into the arts or something was starving. And so I just thought the odds are small of ever making it in the arts. And um, I just didn't look, I didn't, I thought it was not a practical way to go. So I, I stuck with the engineering and I graduated and I became an engineer and got a job doing engineering. And, and then I realized that the real world is very different than college. And there's no such thing as an extracurricular world in the real world. It's like you, whatever you are, what your profession is, that that's your life. And you're, you, you start, all your friends start being in the same field and everything. And I hated it. I didn't like engineering when I was in school. I guess I should have learned from that, uh, <laughs> that I would like it when I, when I was getting paid to do it, but I really, really hated it. And I, I did do it for five years, but I also spent much of that time trying to get out of it. Um, and I would, uh, you know, I started writing jokes for a Nickelodeon news break spoof. And I just had these little tiny gigs here and there, but I did kind of go on a concerted effort uh, campaign to get hired by Howard Stern because he had a, a TV show at that time that was being produced in New Jersey that was just real low budget and hardly had any writing staff. I mean, I really think it was just the guys who were on the radio show that were writing the TV show. Yep. And so I saw that as kind of a soft target. You know, I, I was never going to get on Saturday Night Live. I was never going to get it hired by David Letterman. But but that little show in Secaucus uh, done by a radio guy that, that looked to me like something that, that might actually, actually be foolish enough to hire me, which is what happened. And so, so how I, did you, I, how did you go about making those inroads? How did you introduce yourself as an engineer who writes great comedy? Right. Well, because I had written in college, I had sample material. And then I spent a lot of time writing original material for that show, you know, prior to even being hired by it. So I would send them sketches and they, you know, I, I had their fax number at the station and then I'd call and follow up the fax. You know, I'd fax in a sketch and then I'd call and the executive producer used to answer his own phone. Like there was, you know, they weren't really, you know, they weren't really well set up to keep me out. Right. And so I, uh, I kind of, you know, got talking to the executive producer and kept sending sketches and, and it took me a long time. It took months, literally months of just campaigning and sending material. And they finally, you know, gave me the shot and I quit engineering on a Friday and on Monday morning, I was, you know, making fart sound effects for a fart man sketch in a sound booth, so <laughs> making, making the same money. So it was, it was, um, you know, I don't know, obviously it was a great move for me. Yeah, most definitely. Uh, what kind of comedy were you drawn to uh, when you were when you were growing up, when you were an adolescent? And oh, juvenile, juvenile, puerile. <laughs> I'm not, uh, you know, my my form of entertainment across the board is, you know, my first company was called Mindless Entertainment. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, you know, said I, that, that was what your mom described television as. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's like, I don't know. I, I always knew I wasn't Shakespeare and I always knew that, you know, it was, I don't know, the stuff that makes me laugh. Um, and, uh, you know, Howard Stern is, is I, I like the kind of stuff that, that, that covers the full range from the, you know, extremely silly to, you know, thoughtful commentary on our society. That's, that's all fine with me. And I like it when it's all kind of mushed together. 
Yeah, well, I mean, you, you know, you say you're not Shakespeare, but I think you could consider yourself a bard of pop culture, definitely, yeah. considering, you know, you've got Howard Stern, experience working for Howard Stern, MTV, and of course, uh, what most people uh, probably know you from is the Below Deck series, and now it's handful of, of spinoffs. Um, so the... The idea for the Below Deck series sounds like a, a, a great conversation that suddenly turned into a television show. So bring us back to what was that, 2011? That sounds about right. I think yeah. actually the original concept and trying to get it sold was probably even a couple of years prior to that. OK. Yeah, like 09-ish. Um, I think the, my, the reason, you know, Below Deck is a natural thing for me and, and ended up being probably my most successful and long-lived show uh, is that a lot of my experience in reality television, I started in studio reality television, game shows and talk shows shot in, in a studio mm-hmm. in front of a live audience often. And I kind of transitioned into this other kind of reality, field-based reality, they call it sometimes, that uh, where you're, you're just shooting real life and editing that together into stories. And the kind of reality television I was doing for most of that middle part of my career was house-based, meaning packing people into a house, whether it was celebrities in surreal life or women who wanted to date Flavor Flav or whatever it was, the, the general concept was squish a bunch of big personalities together in a house, cut them off from the world and, you know, watch what happens, which was often quite outrageous. Um, and that, that I really had a lot of success in that area. And then when uh, somebody, uh, a woman who worked for me, who was a director for us uh, on some of these house-based reality shows, she, she had spent time in her younger life as a stew on yachts. And she explained to me about what a world that was and what a crazy job it was where you were, you lived on the yacht. So you're living on this ultra luxury vessel, but you're not living in luxury. You're living in little bunks in the bait, you know, basically the basement of the ship. Right. And and you are serving these millionaires and they want good looking people around them. And a lot of these people on, you know, that most of the jobs are very, you know, high level and technical and need a lot of training and certification. So they're not dumb. Right. They're just, they're just interested in this lifestyle where they don't really, a lot of them didn't even have apartments, you know, or cars. They just live boat to boat to boat. And they had a PO box in Fort Lauderdale and they worked really hard. And then when they were off the clock, they were crazy partiers. And so that just sounded like, wow, that's got a lot of what I'm interested in, 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 you know, this, this issue of being packed together and trapped and relying on each other. And it's kind of, you know, everything a good, I find that a lot of good reality television and even scripted television is kind of has family at its core. Like, you know, the surreal life was an attempt to make a family out of a bunch of celebrities, you know, and we used to cast it with that in mind, like a father figure and a mother figure and a a brother and a young sister, that kind of stuff. And uh, I would say that in below deck, it's also, it's like, they're kind of forced to be a family. There's the right. father's the captain and the, you know, the, the mother might be the chief stew, I guess. And, and, you know, everybody else is trying to get away with what they can get away with, but they're always there for each other and they're relying on each other. And when somebody's lazy, that impacts everybody else. And so they all have what they call stakes together. And so it's, it's such a natural, uh, a naturally good setup for a reality television show. And it has turned out to be exactly that, like just, you know, almost perfect 
workplace drama, you know, social drama, all intertwined and packed in together in that little tin can sh- uh, boat that they're in. And yeah, so and it's got that other element, too, which I think is an important one, too. There's there's some there's it's aspirational uh, in the term in terms of like lifestyle, because I think people it's easy to romanticize what not just being a passenger on one of these yachts would be, but even I think it's easy to romanticize, you know, what it would be like working in, in that environment, too. And you've got, you know, you've got just enough kind of eye candy also to make it visually compelling Right. But, but the exotic locations and the cast yes. is all often very, very good looking. And, and so it's yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, and for some reason, it's also seems to register with the current generation that, you know, they, they probably put a little less em- emphasis in their personal comfort and space and are emphasizing getting out into the world and seeing things and documenting the fact that they're seeing these things in their social media. Um, And so it kind of fits that it's, you know, it's about people who don't mind that they live in a teeny little bunk in a stinky little cabin with, you know, you know, the shower and the toilet are the same thing. You you have to stand over the toilet to take a shower like that. They don't live a comfortable life in there, but it doesn't matter because when they walk out, they're on the deck of a beautiful yacht, you know, anchored in a cove with sea turtles swimming by and it's like wow that's like you know it's kind of mind-blowing actually um and they're willing to work hard to live that life uh which makes it nice too because it's not like it's a show about i don't know waiters or something who are you know really trying to do something else i mean these people who work on yachts they're pretty serious about it and they work really hard and they they take their reputation seriously and they want to keep working boat to boat so you need your captain to be happy with you so that he'll recommend you to the next one and it's not it's not a goof they they take it very seriously and i think that's some of the appeal too yeah absolutely and and sort of the um no pun intended anchoring features is the captain how did you go about or how do you go about because the cast of characters do change how do you go about casting people and kind of you know coming up with that right recipe of people who are going to be able to function in the way that they need to function to do their job but also bring those elements that you know reality tv kind of is fueled by yeah well you know every position on the boat we know all the positions on the boat we know how many people there are we know what the jobs are and we only cast people who are qualified hopefully for that job uh and and more and more recently we've been really we've actually gotten better at it we were bamboozled a couple times in the early seasons but we've we've kind of cut that out now um where we're able to check the references more thoroughly and and so for chief stew for example we'll only talk to chief stews chief stews who have worked on big boats who understand charter who understand the service level required and how to manage a team uh and then from that group of chief stews which honestly is small compared to most most reality shows casting pools. I mean, you know, when you're doing a, when the real world, for example, is casting to put people in a roommates in a house, they have almost the entire world of people of that age to choose from. In our case, we only have the Yachties and the Yachties are not that big a population. I mean, there's a lot of them, but you know, for television casting, you'd, you'd, you'd rather have a much larger pool. Yep. So if we're lucky, if we get three really great chief stews to, to talk to and say, you know, pick one of the three 
as as the as the Chiefs do for the following season. It's it's you know it's we don't have a lot of choice. Fortunately, the yachting world is full of good-looking, well-spoken people. Um, it's a service industry. You know, you don't you don't survive as a chief stew if you don't have a sense of humor, or if you don't have management skills, or if you. And so that it's already okay. Like it's like it's almost like any one of the three is actually kind of an interesting person. It's not. Um, it's it is a great pool of people. It's almost kind of self-selecting. Mm-hmm. So so we just go through every position. And we try to come up with a couple options in every position and then we kind of mix and match. And we like, you know, we don't want too many of the same kind of person, you know, uh, you don't want a whole boat full of hotheads and you don't want a whole boat full of sweethearts and you don't want to, you know, you just kind of, you're trying to figure out um, how best to balance personalities and uh, I don't know, skill levels and worldviews. And, and, uh, you know, we we also make a, we make a concerted effort for diversity. Uh, we don't want, you know, we don't want the, some kind of cookie cutter cast. Right. Um, and so we're, you know, in season to season, we try to diversify the kind of stories we're telling and the people involved. So, um, and so far so good. And I think actually it's gotten easier when we first started the show, the yachting community felt that we were, uh, you know, a bad thing for them. And that if anybody was going to do below deck, they would probably never work on a yacht again because yachting had always uh, prided itself in its, its discretion and how quiet and secretive they were. And they, you know, you never talk about the celebrities on your boat and, you know, they were real, that was a real source of pride. And they thought that a TV show, you know, invading that world was a very bad thing. That has changed. They've decided the yachting community in general has decided that Blow Deck has been great for them. It's raised the profile of yachting and increased the amount of charters sales worldwide, really, because people see it now as a very cool vacation option sure. that they may not have thought of before. So there's that, and then there's also the fact that uh, our crew people, the people who come on and are on the show, and then leave the show, they go on and continue to work in the yachting industry and move up. Um, so it turns out it is not bad for your career to have done below deck. Um, and in some cases has been a help. So, uh, it has gotten easier to cast the show because more chiefs dues, more deckhands, more, uh, of everybody chefs, they're interested in doing the show now, whereas before they kind of stayed away from us and we had even fewer options. But now I would say we're, we've got the yachting world at our disposal. Tell me a little bit about um, how you go about strategizing when you're putting together the the spinoffs, because in addition to kind of the, um, you know, the anchor program below deck, there is now below deck Mediterranean, below deck sailing yacht, below deck down under and just this year below deck adventure how do you kind of maintain the um consistency of the brand but also make it so that each of the spin-off series you know has an aspect of their own identity that was very important to the network like when when we first sold below deck mediterranean which was the first of the spin-offs mm-hmm. it was partially sold on the idea that that mediterranean chartering is much different than Caribbean chartering. In the Caribbean, it's really just little islands and beaches. Right. In the Med, you're in these beautiful old towns and fortresses and, uh, you know, it's Europe. It's a whole different vibe. And the kind of service is different. And the kind of people who go to Europe and, and charter in the Med are different than the kind of people who go to the Caribbean. So 
I was able to make a pretty good case that the two shows would have very distinct personalities. And it is true. Um, but then once we had those two, I was like, oh, that's it. Now we're going to have below deck Indian Ocean. We're going to have below deck uh, Baltic Ocean and just like Real Housewives, you know. <laughs> and I went to them and I said, I want to do, you know, I just want to do every ocean. We could have seven of them. And they said, no, Mark, you, you can't just make new. You just can't do below deck based on a new ocean. You can't do it that way. <laughs> and I said, well, why? You know, you have the housewives of New York and the housewives of, of Orange County and the housewives of Atlanta. And they go, oh, no, Mark, those are all very, very, very different. Uh, they're not just based on a, a different city. It's a different kind of population. You can't a uh, real housewives of New York woman would never find herself in the real housewives of Beverly Hills, for example. And I'm like, all right, I guess. I don't know. Like, I, I actually didn't really know that. <laughs> I thought, oh, they're, they're just, you know, semi-rich housewives. It doesn't matter what their zip code is. Right. But anyway, so they said I couldn't have just every ocean. I had, if I wanted more spinoffs, I had to, I had to make very distinct, uh, distinct storytelling, which is fine. I, I, that's the network's job to push the, the creative uh, team. So, um, I, when I at first was trying to sell a third spinoff uh, and they said, you can't just have another ocean. I said, well, there is a real, very real uh, uh, rivalry in yachting. And that's between the motor yachts and the sailing yachts. And the people who work on the sailing yachts are very different than the people who work on the motor yachts and the kind of people who charter sailing yachts are different. And it's a very different experience. And they were like, yep, that's exactly, that's the idea. That's the kind of thing we're talking about. Let's do below deck sailing yacht. So we did that. And then uh, you know, it's, it's only because of the success of the show. I mean, if, if the show didn't get big ratings, nobody would be asking for new ones, but, right. uh, you know, it's been going very well and seems to have not found its, uh, ceiling yet. So, uh, yeah, there's very recently, uh, there are two new ones, uh, or three new ones. There's below deck down under below deck adventure. So two new ones. Is that right? Uh, that's what that's what I'm seeing. Yes, yeah, I think that's right. <laughs> Losing track. So, Blow Dick Down Under was based on the idea that in Australia, the Great Barrier Reef is a whole different kettle of fish, so to speak, from the Mediterranean and sailing yachts and the Caribbean. Like, it's a whole different thing. I mean, really, it's all a lot about diving and being underwater. So, it's almost a a trick name below deck down under because it's really meant to be, you know, you're really meant to feel like it's an underwater experience uh, added on top of the yachting experience. So that's one version. And then the other one is below deck adventure, which is like cold, cold weather yachting or expedition yachting where you're, you're looking for glaciers and you're looking for fjords and you're looking for killer whales and instead of, or, or dog sledding or whatever, instead of the sitting on a beach, uh, sipping a cocktail. So it's kind of a below deck for the, the people who want to get off the boat, uh, you know, have an adventure and then come home to super, a super luxury seven course meal. Uh, And that one uh, is also editing right now and should be premiering. I don't know when in a month or so. Uh, So yes, fortunately we, we have managed to come up with all these different angles on basically the same formula of these people who work on a, on a super yacht. But uh, so far we've continued to find new ways to tell that story. So you mentioned that you're in the process of editing uh, for, for at least one of the series. How often does it uh, arise that, you know, you're all the shooting is taking place on the yachts and you come away. How clear are you in your mind as to, 
what the ed- what the final edit is going to look like. Are have you been doing this long enough that you can already sense that okay, this stays, this goes, this stays, but it's got to go before that. Like, are you editing as as the show's coming together? Well, you know, we like to think that we are. We like to think that we know what's going on and that we know what we're going to get. And uh, but I have to be honest with you, we we are never. Right. In the field, really, our job is to cat. We have six weeks to shoot and we have nine charters in six weeks. And our job in the field is to capture everything we possibly can. Every conversation, every crucial decision, every friendship, every argument, whatever it is, we need to capture it all and get it all on tape and get it back to Los Angeles. And so we spend six weeks chasing the cast and finding out, you know, trying to dig for the truth, almost like journalists, like what's going on here? And does she really have a boyfriend at home? And and why isn't she, you know, it's like, what's going on, you know? And we do a lot of investigatory work um, and surveillance. And, you know, uh, it's really just, it's a different job. It's just basically get as much as you can. Now that's, I say that, but we still have an idea of, you know, major story. You know, we understand what, you know, what people are going through and what are the challenges that they're facing and uh, what are the major moments that have occurred. Um, You know what those are as they're happening. And then we try to make sure that we're telling the full story. That usually means conversations. Like for example, if two people have a bad argument alone in a room, and it, they're both clearly moved by it. You know, they're upset with each other and they're upset with themselves or whatever it is. And then they go off and they brood. It's not very useful to us, that brooding process. What we need is them to talk about how they're feeling. And so we'll usually send another cast member to them and say, go find out what's up with Susie. Like okay. something's wrong with Susie, go find out what it is. And then that becomes a conversation. And that's us producing a conversation, but we're not telling anybody what to say or what to do or anything like that. But we're just making sure that Susie talks like, please, Susie, tell somebody how you're feeling and what's going on. And those conversations lead to other bits of story. Like Susie will confess that she feels angry at herself for getting into that fight and blames herself. And then the person now will tell somebody else. And it becomes like, it becomes a story uh, that may not have become a story if we had just let Susie sit on the deck and brood. Um, so we do know what's going on. We are trying to get the story out. We're trying to get it verbalized. Mostly yep. we're trying to get people's emotions verbalized as a big part of our job. Yep. Um, and so we do do that. But then when we get back that whole story, that whole argument that Susie had and the brooding and the deck and the, and the person who came and had, a, we didn't have room for it. Like it's, there's too much other good stuff in the episode and it was completely, you know, just gets left on the floor, the cutting room floor. And that's true of, you know, 80% of our work in the field, you know, uh, of the actual things we think are great scenes end up just getting lost because they, they don't fit uh, into the 40 minutes that we have per episode. And and Uh, how many episodes per season are you doing for Bravo? Well, we always know that we're going to do at least 12 Mm -hmm. and, uh, then Bravo, then in post, we go back and we see what we've got. And uh, I think we're steadily running at like 15, 16 or 17 every season. But it's all decided later. Um, we, we do nine charters. 
Yep. And early on, we had calculated that, well, with nine charters, we should be able to get 12 episodes because you get two out of the first charter and you get two out of the last charter. And then all we got to do is have one of the other seven charters is worth a double episode. And then you're at 12. But um, uh, clearly, though, we get much more story than that. And so we've, we've ne- I don't think we've ever delivered 12 episodes. I think it's always been more. So. And, and where are you yourself typically located manning mission control while, while all this shooting is taking place all over the world? Me personally, I don't go out anymore. Okay. The, the kids, the kids are running the show now at Below Deck. <laughs> uh, very, very, very talented uh, bunch. But uh, the way it works is that the the television crew is about fifty people, and we all live on, let's say, it's the British Virgin Islands. We all live on Tortola in okay. in a hotel or or something, and the boat will be anchored all over the British Virgin Islands. It'll be at Virgin Gordo one day, and it'll be at Salt Island another day and whatever. And we commute from Tortola in a boat, in a transport boat to the, to work. So we'll get up in the morning and meet at the dock and jump on a boat at 6am and be jetted out to the yacht. And we'll climb aboard secretly and sneak past the crew and get into the control room, which is basically one of the state rooms of the yacht that we've taken over. And we hide in that control room, usually about not 50 of us, the fifties like includes a lot of support staff on land. Uh, in any one time, there's probably 10 of us on the boat and we're all jammed in that 10, 12 of us jammed into a, a little room hiding, mm-hmm. um, and watching the cameras, you know, what we see the cameras on monitors. And, um, so that's how that works. Do you think also- as, as reality television has become more ubiquitous, um, over the past 20 years, is that does that raise the stakes in terms of what's necessary for compelling reality TV? And, you know, uh, how have those elements that are bringing the viewers back episode after episode, how have those evolved in the reality TV genre? I mean, there's always a spectrum of reality television from the very, very, the very, very fake to the very, very real. Right. And, uh, I, I think that they always survive, like even fake reality shows still survive and are still watched. I just am proud of the fact that I've tried to stick to this kind of like once you accept the premise that, like, for example, we've got a house full of women who want to date Flavor Flav. Once you accept that premise, what happens then is really what happens, like, you know, their friendships and their animosity or whatever. That's the story that we're telling in Below Deck. It's even more. Uh, I don't know. It's more anchored in the real world because it really is a workplace. It really is a business that these people would be doing even if we weren't there. Right. Um, you have to accept the premise that I've picked the chief stew and the chef and the the deckhand and put and put, assembled them, but I've assembled them out of real pieces in the real world and to do their normal jobs. Uh, the chef is really a yacht chef and he's on the yacht as a chartered yacht chef. So, so what you're seeing, and then the charter guests, they really pay for their charters. We don't right away from season one. I was like, we cannot give away these charters. They can't be free because if they're free, then the people will come on and they won't care. They won't care if their steak is overcooked and they won't care if their martini's not cold, but you get them to pay 35, $40,000 to be here. You bet they're going to care that they are having a great vacation and that the jet skis work. And, and that's what we needed. We needed charter guests who care and are really on vacation and have, you know, basically, 
put their money up for this. And the tip is real. The money that the, the charter guests give the, the, um, the crew at the end of their charter, that's really their cash money that they hand in an envelope to the captain. And that means our crew of the boat have to earn it. They have to like really, you know, impress these people to get a bigger tip. Yeah. Um, and because of that, I'm very proud of how real it is. And so I believe that in the world of reality television, we are, we occupy a very, very uh, authentic place. Mm-hmm. And I think that the audience that, that loves below deck loves the fact that we are an authentic show and that they can, you can sense it, you know, it is, you can, you can even see it because it's rough. It's like, not everything's always perfectly in shot. And uh, sometimes we just use the piece of a surveillance footage where somebody's shoulders, the only thing you can see. And, but the conversation is so compelling that we use it. Like it's, you know, we're so not, we're just barely capturing what's happening. Um, and I think that's part of the, that's part of the beauty of it. Like it's, you know, it's a, and I, I do feel like uh, if there's a pressure in reality television, it's to find authenticity and it is hard. It's a hard thing to do in an artificial situation. It's a, you know, it's the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. You can't observe something without, without changing it. And uh, the cameras the engineer coming out again. Exactly right. I'm sorry. <laughs> I can show you. I can show you a formula. Of, no, please uh, do. <laughs> uh, t- where were where were you in the uh, below deck world when COVID hit? And how much of a, a curveball? And for how long did that did that throw your various productions off? Well, again, we were fortunate that the kind of show we do because we're an isolated. Uh, vessel on the high seas of, of people who are just living with each other. Right. We were we were kind of well set up to just be a pod. Um, it was not easy by any stretch of the imagination to figure out how to get back up and running in a world that had shut down. Um, one thing we did was we went to Croatia to do it. And we actually shot two seasons in a row back to back in Croatia because Croatia had the best COVID profile of, you know, low instances of the disease. And it was a, it was possible for us to own an entire hotel uh, for the period of the shoot and basically pod isolate ourselves. Like we did not, we did not go to any restaurants. We didn't, you know, and so it was basically the, the boat could park at the Marina at the hotel the crew of the TV show lived in that hotel. We even isolated morning shift from evening shift. Like you, you couldn't socialize. If you were on the morning shift, you weren't allowed to socialize with people on the evening shift. Like you couldn't just kick up your feet and have a beer with a nighttime cameraman because you were a morning shift person. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we did constant testing. Um, The hardest, probably the hardest element of it was the charter guests who had to come from the United States. We had to, you know, find a way to travel, Americans into Europe, uh, and then test them and then quarantine them. And so we had to quarantine our charter guests in hotel rooms for, I believe it was two weeks. Uh, and we still had charter guests willing to pay the money, quarantine themselves in a hotel room for two weeks and then come aboard and do a four day charter. Um, it was amazing, but we, we got it done. We did two in a row and we were one of the few reality television shows delivering new content 
without, you know, we've even without masks, like this was just a, a pod. And so those shows came out great and were very timely. I think they came out at a time when people needed to watch some silly reality television from an exotic location. So yeah, absolutely. Particularly one that made quarantining look highly attractive. Right, right. <laughs> one final question for you. You know, you're, you're in these very exotic locations. You're there, there's certainly a degree of luxury being, uh, due to the fact that you're on a yacht and there's all these, you know, the, these human drama elements. And yet as the producer of the show, You've got to be kind of that, you know, calm in the eye of the storm. What is it about what's innate within your personality, do you think, that allows you to do that? Because, you know, it's not just happenstance that somebody creates 50 television shows and, you know, many of which run for many, many seasons. Um, Is that the that left brain, right brain balance that you possess? Or what do you think? What do you think allows you to do that? Well, I mean, I think ultimately to make a successful TV show, you have to make the audience happy. And I mean, there's other aspects you have to be on budget and you have to figure out a way to produce it, of course, and figuring out how to produce below deck was extremely difficult and did require all that, that engineering skill. But ultimately none of it matters if you can figure it out and do it on budget, if the show is not entertaining and to know what is entertaining to a large number of people, I think is a, that's a special skill. It's like a special skill to be able to say, that's, that's really great. Like that is really funny or that is really moving or that is, you know, to know what a very millions of people will find interesting or funny, uh, is, I don't know. That's what I think it is. I think that's what I I think I've been able to do that. And I'll be honest with you. I think I learned a lot of it from Howard Stern that more about that. Yeah. He was really, really tuned into his audience and he, he almost like could picture his, the person he was talking to on the radio and he knew who it was. who was sitting in front of his TV show and he knew it would crack him up and he knew what they wanted. And he spent all of his time thinking about that. They wanted to just serve his audience. Yeah. And I learned from that. Like, I really take that seriously. I, 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 when I'm watching something on a monitor in the control room of the, of the yacht, I, I get bored. Like, I'll be like, Oh God, I'm bored. And I know that everybody else is bored and what's going on. We're going to have to, you know, we're going to have to look carefully at the next charter guests and make sure that they're, you know, they, they're, you know, energetic people because this is killing me, this boredom. Right. And it's, it's a, it's a skill. It's a skill to be able to get bored and not be so self-satisfied with yourself that you, Oh, this is great. Everything we're doing is great. Right. Like you don't want to be that you want to kind of be like, well, it's my, is the audience happy right now or not? and um, and work really hard to make the audience happy. And I think that's uh, that's the trick. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, the success would certainly be an indication of that. Uh, I've been speaking with Mark Cronin, who is the uh, one of the creators and the producer of the Below Deck series and its multiple spinoffs, among many others. Mark, thanks so much for making the time. This has been really fun and interesting, and um, it's, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. My pleasure, Michael. Thank you so much. Okay, take care.